Welcome to this uh, Institute for Government. Well, I'm not sure if it's an event, a podcast, uh, not quite live streaming, uh, but uh, we're going to be talking about the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, the most important relationship in government. Uh, I'm Alex Thomas, uh, one of the programme directors at the Institute for Government, and uh, this is uh, IFG in a time of coronavirus. So uh, this is our first reconditioned event. Uh, So it probably helps for me to offer a few words of explanation. We're recording this uh, because other Otherwise, we'd be sitting on a stage in central London with a hundred odd people in front of us. And so for obvious reasons, that is not uh, happening. Uh, This is our uh, first event. It's a bit of uh, that we're recording like this. It's a bit of uh, an experiment. Um, We're very keen uh, for constructive feedback on uh, how it works. uh, And we will get ever more uh, uh, expert and uh, hopefully interactive on these events as we we proceed. Uh, We've got a fantastic panel to talk about this. As I said, we're all in different places, uh, so we may all have different background noises. Uh, bear with us, and uh, I hope the event gives some high-quality content for everybody, whether you're uh, self-isolating, whether you're unwell, uh, working from home, or doing anything else in these strange times. Uh, so, as I said, a brilliant panel. Uh, we've got Baroness Kate Fall, who uh, is a senior advisor at Brunswick, uh, Brunswick, a former special advisor to David Cameron, and author of the new book, The Gatekeeper, reflecting on her experiences in uh, number 10. Torsten Bell uh, is the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, regular informed commentator on events and a former Special Advisor to Alistair Darling. And Robert Shrimsley is the Chief Political Commentator at the Financial Times and an astute observer of British government. I should also say we're missing Tim Pitt, who would have joined us, but on today of all days, uh, his Wi-Fi is down. So uh, thoughts uh, thoughts with Tim uh, as, he, as he fills his day. Uh, so Uh, As I say, Prime Minister and Chancellor, the most important relationship in government, we're uh, recording this just after the press conference uh, with uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, where um, the Chancellor announced some quite uh, eye-watering sums of support for the economy, and just before uh, his statement to the House of Commons uh, uh, to uh, flesh that out. So I wonder if I could ask uh, Kate first... um, uh, what does the coronavirus crisis tell us about this Prime Minister and this Chancellor's relationship, and how does that compare to some of the experiences that you've seen? Well, look, I mean, the the relationship is now bonded over one of the biggest crises we've seen, bigger even than the financial crisis, which was the beginning of our time in government. Um, so it, you, what you're seeing is a sort of solidarity of purpose not just between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, but indeed the health, um, the, the chief scientists, the health department, um, biz, all these people were really running a wartime civil contingency operation, joined up government. It feels to me like there's no opposition, there's no parliament. This is, you know, a sort of one-party um state in, in a sort of wartime situation. So very, very strongly bonded and acting to reassure a very worried nation. And do you think, have you seen any evidence of some of the uh, sort of things that we all got very excited about a few weeks ago? Um, uh, and it was only a few weeks ago about new number 10, number 11 coordination units um, uh, and uh, a sort of a different uh, approach uh, between Treasury and number 10. Or is it just all hands on deck? It's a crisis. This is what we'd be doing. You know, it, it's obviously a brand new team. I mean, um, 
wish he came in to, to a new job, um, a new a budget within a couple of weeks, um, presumably a, a set of advisors, a new set of advisors, and then suddenly he had a budget that had partly been formed. Then he created a sort of corona budget, if you like, on top of that. We don't know how much was new and old, but uh, you felt like there were sort of two budgets. And then even just a, a week, less than a week later, we have this massive financial statement today off the back of all the other statements about the health of our country. So to me, that sort of conversation looks like a conversation from a different time. I mean, it really does feel like wartime footing, everyone coming together. And if there are disagreements, um, one of one of the key things, my view between that relationship is trust. And if you trust the people you work with, then you, you can disagree with them in private, but not read about it in the newspaper. And so far, I mean, we haven't seen any discordant murmurings. Maybe we will, but not, not yet. That's a good cue to bring uh, Robert in. Have you picked up on any discordant murmurings uh, in, in the press or, or, or otherwise? Um, well, I think there's been a bit, but it's not been about the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. It's been over the um, the response to the medical and scientific advice. I have to say I don't entirely agree with Kate's analysis of where we are now, though it may be right by the end. Um, actually, this has felt to me very much like a number 10 Downing Street operation until the last couple of days. Uh, the formation of what one might call a war cabinet or an inner, or an inner cabinet has only happened today. Rishi Sunak only took over um, a, a business and economics planning committee yesterday. So although conversations have been taking place, and although there's been talk, it hasn't actually felt like a joined up government effort yet. It may be about to become one. I think to be fair to them in mitigation, you know, up until last week, they were for thinking about the budget and then things have progressed very fast. But I think one of the reasons for what feel like some of the missteps and communications errors that have happened over the last couple of days have been that too much of this has been centralised inside number 10. Not enough alternate voices have been heard that in the early days this has been viewed much more as a health crisis than as a crisis of several dimensions, which is why Matt Hancock's been right there at the centre of it. But some of the other people you might have expected to be there have not. And I think the truth is they're, they're all a bit shell-shocked by this, and it's taken them a few days to get up and running. Hopefully what we're beginning to see is the better coordination now. But I have to say it, it hasn't felt that way um, in the last week. It certainly felt yesterday like this sort of this massive moment uh, when the Prime Minister first announced the, uh, uh, the, the, the tighter restrictions. Um, uh, and then the uh, economic reaction to that almost uh, took them uh, on the back foot and, and took them by, by, by surprise. There, there wasn't a, a sort of neatly wrapped up package of measures. But uh, Torsten, lots of people making comparisons to the financial crisis in uh, uh, 2008-9. Uh, uh, what have your reflections been on the, the Prime Minister-Chancellor relationship over the last uh, a few uh, uh, strange weeks? Um, well, I mean, people are making uh, comparisons with that crisis, and I think that is reasonable in terms of the scale of it and the global synchronization of what is going on. But in lots of other ways, it's actually a very different kind of crisis, basically for the reason that Robert is setting out, which is that the unusual, very unusual thing about this crisis is that people have been looking at it for too long through the lens of a health crisis, and that this is a very unusual economic shock where it is the choice uh, about the, the health response that is actually driving the economic shock. And that is the key thing we need to recognise. So it is not just that the economic problem is 
have we got support for people who are sick? But it is it is one of the broader economic shocks, which will be much bigger from the, what we do to contain those health shocks. So that is a, why it's just a very, very different kind of um, crisis. And it's why we shouldn't have taken so long to get from the, we were, we've known we were going to at some stage be moving to the kind of measures that we have been taking over the last 24 hours and the economic response to that, which is basically, you know, that is a measure that is saying we need to have economic contraction in some particular sectors and we need it to happen fast. The, um, and if that's your policy answer, for good reasons on the health side of things, you need an economic response that is targeting support quickly to those sectors, in particular to family incomes in those sectors, partly uh, to make sure people don't suffer real hardship, but also because that's what import- is important for making sure that the demand hit that comes from this kind of crisis is not deeper than it uh, needs to be. But this, but you know, but this is complicated. Now, in terms of the relationship between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, I don't think at all that is the a problem in the short term. I would have thought that the economic aspects of this response might have come to the fore sooner had we had a kind of, you know, to be fair to the Chancellor, more time in post, you know, more established role within government and other things. But I don't think that is the core, to be fair to them, underlying issue. The underlying issue is things are moving very quickly. Decisions are being taken from a medical perspective and they have got huge economic implications and we are now getting around to them. Yeah. And in a crisis, it's sort of you know, the machinery of government is set up to to coordinate everybody and, and, and almost sort of take some of the normal cross departmental bickering uh, and, uh, and and discussions out of it and, and focus on that one goal through the through the COBRA machinery. I mean, the other thing to, the other thing to think about is, look, what is the thing that normally causes tension between a chancellor and a prime minister? Money. How much money you want to spend on your priorities and do you need to raise tax to pay for it. That is not the core. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it is not the core dynamic in the response to this kind of crisis. It will come to that later when we come to the recovery phase, but this is about everybody agreeing we want to spend lots of money to try and solve this problem, but wrestling with what is an actually effective way to do that. So it's a different problem. It's a coming up with the right answer problem, not a treasury versus number 10, how much do we spend problem. Yeah, we will do whatever it takes, as the Chancellor said. Um, uh, when, we times, <laughs> when we work out what it is, when we work out what it is. Taking a sort of step back for a minute, then on on the you know the sort of debate over Sajid Javid's uh, uh, resignation and uh, the reshuffle, it felt like there were two schools of thought um, between those who sort of. Uh, felt that it was perfectly fair and reasonable for there to be a strong uh, prime minister with a strong mandate and a chancellor who was uh, enacting and transacting that agenda. And then those who were worried that that uh, meant that there wouldn't be pushback, there wouldn't be um, uh, sort of challenge and testing of a number 10 that, that sort of wanted to get certain things done that may or may not be uh, wise. I mean, Kate, what was, what was your experience of that dynamic with um, David Cameron and George Osborne? Well, we, we had a sort of two-tier dynamic in the sense that um, there was a close relationship between George Osborne and David Cameron and between our teams. That didn't mean we didn't disagree. We, profound, we had lots of debate and lots of disagreement, but we did it in, in, in behind closed doors. But then the second dynamic of, of the coalition years, of course, was that we were in coalition with the Lib Dems and the, the, the quad was set up with... Um, Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander, George Osborne, David Cameron, to um, to decide on budgets and decide on policy. And that created a very different dynamic, um, partly personality-driven, you know, a bumptious George and a bumptious Danny and a sort of more careful um, Nick Clegg and a sort of firm decision-maker with David. 
And people would come to those meetings with ideas that maybe the numbers were a bit, you know, north of where they ended up, partly knowing that they would be argued down. And so over time, I think that that became a, an important decision-making body, um, both in terms of the, the dynamic of policy, but also a set of people who sort of played into, in a way, their stereotypes of their character. And that, that drove, uh, drove some of those budget decisions. So it's character as much as institutional structures. It's really interesting. I think it is, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Torsten, how, sort of same question to you almost, but um, Alistair Darling and uh, uh, Gordon Brown, uh, how, how, did that, uh, uh, how did that feel in, in, in those times? It was always a triumph. It was a complete success at <laughs> every measure. Nobody was ever angry with anyone and there was never a crossword. Forces yeah. of hell, wasn't it? <laughs> there may have been some occasional disagreements. Uh, yes. So look, I think there's, there's a number of things to, and in some ways, actually, one thing to reflect that's slightly different about this crisis is that the debate about how to talk about it and how to tell the public how serious it is has slightly been taken out of the government's hand by the fact that it's happening globally um, uh, and that it's happening in kind of real time. The, um, so that is different. Whereas the row in, um, under Alistair and Gordon was partly to do with Alistair's slightly you know, grimmer view of the future, which may reflect personality as well as substantive view about how things were um, shaping up. And so that was the kind of, that was a source of tension. Alistair was clearer that this was going to be tough and might need um, uh, difficult times in the short term and then difficult decisions in the longer term. So that was a source of um, some disagreement. But I wouldn't, when it come to, came to the actual, you know, given that we're focusing here on the crisis phase, response I, I, I they were basically pretty much at one you know both to get together collectively they took the view that we then took to the rest of the world that what was needed was a recapitalization of our banking system not just measures to increase liquidity so on that big on the that big element of the crisis response i don't think there was much between them the challenges were more before that in terms of how to talk about how bad the situation was and then afterwards about what the future should look like and how institutionally, how did that play out between the Treasury and, and Number 10, Those when, when there well, were tensions? Well, if you think about um, what's happening today, what you're seeing is that for everyone kind of writing off the Treasury a few weeks back and saying, you know, some joint unit made of four people was going to somehow make a huge structural change to how Whitehall functions. The reality is in a crisis, you need professional civil servants used to doing that. And that is who is putting in place the details of this response and who is in lots of elements of it. Not, you know, I'm not saying everything is as we would want it, particularly on the levels of support for family incomes. But that is now uh, that is now stepping up and you know being and as I say, being delivered principally by civil servants. So in the same way, you're seeing these visible medical experts fronting up press conferences because of the increased level of public trust in those people over politicians. On the economic side, it is the civil service that is leading this, and they are coming from the treasury because that is where those civil servants sit. And Robert, that points to something about the institutional power of the Treasury. I certainly felt when everybody was writing off the Treasury uh, a few weeks ago, uh, they were underestimating the institutional power of this inst- of this uh, organisation that that has its teeth in all sorts of bits of policy across Whitehall. Um, well, I don't think anybody was writing off the Treasury for exactly the, um, the reasons you set out, but I think they were writing off the power of the Chancellor when Sajid Javid was there, and I, I, I know I certainly was. I mean, it was very clear that the Prime Minister had a weak Chancellor and to some extent 
um, that was how he liked it. If one of the striking things about the cabinet uh, prior to the reshuffle was that although there were plenty of people in it who might have fancied their chance of becoming prime minister, there was nobody who thought, ha, that's a prime minister in waiting. And there was a very strong sense, I thought, that um, that was how Downing Street liked it. Um, of course, it's, it's ridiculously early to talk about people in these terms, seriously, but they do have a chancellor who people are looking at now and debate, de- discussing um, as a future leader. But the truth is, I think that although the Treasury has enormous power, uh, it does need a chancellor who's powerful, just as a chancellor needs the Treasury. And, and, and I think a weak chancellor does have knock-on consequences for what the Treasury is able to do, and more importantly, what the Treasury is able to stop. Mm-hmm. And what... Also, Robert, what, what, what do you think about the how the media environment and the kind of reporting around it shapes the prime minister and the chancellor relationship, and therefore almost the whole the whole of the government? Uh, thinking about you know, the, the TBGBs, the Tony Blair, Gordon Brown uh, briefing wars, um, the sort of the, the, the uh, what now looks like the kind of harmony of the coalition, as Kate as Kate was saying, uh, and some of the uh, uh, some of the um, sort of turbulent times with Theresa May and, and Philip Hammond. Uh, how, how, do you think the media is an actor in this, or they're, they're reflecting the, um, uh, the sort of institutional tensions within government? Both. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the media is the communications ocean in which politics swims, and so you can't ignore what's going on, and the media is prone to playing up issues, uh, is prone to stories, and stories tend to require tension or drama or dissent. On the other hand, um, you know, I, I was a reporter in, in the lobby for most of the Blair um, government, and I reported on the TBGBs, and what I remember is people constantly denying that it was true. The, the, the extraordinary <laughs> denials from both camps. Oh, no, this is absolute nonsense. It's a media invention. The truth is that the media is guilty of many things, but it doesn't tend to consistently over years and years play up something that isn't there. Um, the truth is the tension between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair existed and that therefore fashioned, that was in fact the story of New Labour for the first few years in government, not least because the Tories were in such disarray and so unimportant in terms of political power that all opposition came from within. When you went to the David Cameron government, both the coalition period and, and, and later, it was obvious that he and George Osborne had an extremely close working relationship that in some ways was similar to that of um, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown at the start, with the big distinction that they'd seen Tony Brown, so Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had learnt some of those lessons from it. Also, I think in that George Osborne understood that if he was ever to become prime minister, it was not going to be by trashing David Cameron. It was because David Cameron had been such a success. There were, on the other hand, consequences to that because whenever he took his eye off a particular ball because other things were going on, uh, things sometimes went wrong. The most obvious example that springs to my mind are some of the health service reforms where uh, George Osborne was so preoccupied with the austerity planning that he didn't pay as much attention to what Andrew Lansley was doing in health. And by the time they realised he was doing it, it was too late to stop him. Do you think that's right, Kate? Um, Well, I I thought, I I think lots of interesting things there. I mean, I certainly totally agree with what Robert said about the irony of the the Sajid um, Javid resignation, because in fact, what Downing Street had um, now have in place is a, a potentially extremely strong chancellor who also looks like a potential leader. I mean, again, it's too early to talk about these things at this moment, but that that surely wasn't what they meant, or to ruin their reshuffle day, which should be a day that speaks to the strength of a government. Um, on, on, in terms of the, the the George Osborne thing, I completely agree. You know, 
that that was true. Um, the health performance was a good example of when we were all completely preoccupied with the sort of financial rescue plan, which, by the way, was the glue that bound that coalition government right the way through. And it's interesting how we'll see possibly with with this situation that this is this does become the glue that binds them. But Yes, I think he and we took our eye off the ball with the health reforms, and we only sort of noticed when it was already quite far down the road. And if you remember, we had a sort of pause and reflect moment. Mm-hmm. And Kate, how do you see the sort of institution? Did, did the institutional sort of power of the the, the treasury um, it kind of make itself known to you in in number ten, or was it all through the prism of George Osborne and and, and the relationship that he had with David Cameron? Yes, I mean. You know, the number 10 is is a sort of a unit, like a guerrilla warfare unit. It's, it, it has huge power, but it doesn't have anything like the, you know, your leverage of power comes from those huge departments of state. As as has just been said, you know, the, the power of those civil servants and those experts, they have the money. And in a sense, if you're, if you can't sort of get your chancellor to do what you ask them to do, you're not, they're not going to happen. You know, that, that, you know, follow the money. So, there was no doubt about it that you know if your if your chancellor is in charge of the treasury and you have a good relationship with your chancellor, you are more likely to find that the things you want to do actually happen. <laughs> and if those relationships are broken down either between prime minister and chancellor, or the chancellor isn't really respected and doesn't really have a grip on the department, then then those levers don't really when they pull, nothing happens. So very important. Hmm. And comes back to the political alignment uh, 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 there. Did did you? Um, uh, is it as uh, is it as straightforward as saying number ten wants to spend and the treasury doesn't want to spend? Uh, you know, hashtag sound money from uh, Nick McPherson. Uh, or is there more kind of complexity to the relationship for that? Uh, Torsten, what was your you know experience holding the purse strings? Um, they're definitely it's, it's definitely more complex as everything is in um, life and there are occasion there are occasions certainly when a chancellor has their own pet projects they want to do that do cost lots of money and actually a prime minister would rather rein them in kind of Tony Blair's version of history is definitely that he didn't want to see as big an increase in spending on tax credits as Gordon Brown um, actually delivered so clearly it can be um, it can definitely be more complicated um, I, I was more on the spending thing it's just that there is this big structural pressure but it isn't just spending i mean in general um and this does go in difference in phases but in general you have got more activist pressures from within number 10 you have more pressure from the media but on something must be done on all issues rather than just on economic issues um and the treasury is providing not just a check on uh, the actual amount of spending but also on is it a good idea value for money just i think what other what people would sometimes call a bit of grit in the oyster to make sure you get to better collective decisions rather than people thinking i have to announce something today this is the idea i have got that i could announce and it's just happening yeah and where uh, number 10 and the treasury are aligned then that gives that force immense power uh, vis-a-vis the rest of government uh, certainly uh, my experience when i was a, a civil servant um i mean uh, robert do you, do you kind of see that that playing out um well i mean i think clearly if if the chance and the prime minister want to do the same thing it's quite difficult to stop them politically certainly at least um the thing i think is is in a way more more important is, is what i might call the tension or creative tension between the chancellor and the prime minister and its value 
to, to the entire system. I think we can all see that if the two are at war, that's no good. If they're really fighting over, over everything, but the prime minister can't get rid of the chancellor, that's, that's a recipe for things going badly wrong in government. I think it's also the case that if they're completely at one on everything, you question where where's the scepticism within government, where the thing, where's the person seeing potential pitfalls and problems down the line. So the model relationship is clearly one that is essentially harmonious, that is based on respect, that is based upon you know a roughly shared set of goals, but in which the Chancellor feels able to stand up to the Prime Minister and able to argue the toss on something and fight very hard so that the Prime Minister has to think more than twice um, about overruling them. I think one model that I thought worked fairly well, in spite of all the problems besetting them at the time, I thought that Kenneth Clark as Chancellor as John Major was, wasn't a bad setup because you had a powerful and important Chancellor who couldn't be ignored, um, and you had a Prime Minister with political problems trying to hold his party together. But it meant that the Treasury was taken seriously, but it didn't have the final say on things. I do think that is important. I say on we uh, you, too often you, you know you don't want the treasury having the final say on all kinds of things, even on things that are very economic, like the details of all the details of the spending review. Yes, the process in lots of ways is run by the treasury, but these are big cross departmental decisions, and in the end they shape entire government. So you you know it shouldn't be the treasury having the final say on all kinds of um, policy decisions. As I say, you just want enough grit in the oyster that you get to a better set of decisions. The other point I'd mention is that obviously, depending on the um, whether the Chancellor has reached the summit of um, their ambitions or whether they're still um, looking upwards, is you saw and you particularly saw it in both Gordon Brown and George Osborne, you know, the Treasury being used as an instrument of their own political ambitions and empire building and policy uh, occasionally coming forward, which which suited people who might be allies and didn't reward people who weren't. And I think that's the other issue one does one does have to watch against and where one has. A degree of sympathy with the prime minister when that. So the happening. answer, helpfully, that under Alistair Darling, because we didn't, he, he had no such ambitions. We didn't have any of that. But for George Osborne, it has always been a, it was always a pleasure watching him uh, announce particular people having lobbied him so hard on fuel duty that he had decided generously to give into there. So there was much more of that of a building of a base within the uh, Conservative Parliamentary Party than you know. Alistair wasn't particularly bothered about such things. In fact, it may have been a good idea if he was a bit more bothered. And yeah, with Gordon Brown as well, presumably Kate, sorry. Gordon was definitely bothered. <laughs> yeah. I think it's fair to say that Chancellor wasn't George Osborne's destination job <laughs> in the same way that um, maybe it was Alistair Dyer. And you're absolutely right, you know, he was invested in the Cameron project working out. And, and, and that went both ways. I mean, when, when um, the economy still wasn't clicking, um, you know, growing in, in, in 2012 with the very unfortunate budget that year, you know, that, that people did sort of, you know, have quiet words with David Cameron, oh, you know, should we keep George Osborne in place? And the fact they stood by each other and saw that through. Um, and when the economy started growing, of course, that felt like, you know, two people who stood by each other at difficult times. Because the 2012 budget was interesting, was because it was it was an example of where the Treasury almost had um, uh, too much influence. Because some of those measures that actually politically uh, would have been better to be knocked out didn't end up getting knocked out. And it's the it's the civil servants civil service uh, you know br- bring out your uh, bring out your old policies that you've been trying to get through. A sort of uh, uh, story was uh, was was uh, what it seemed like. Uh, a question to all three of you. Um, uh, 
about the uh, sort of institutional structures uh, of the centre of government. So you've got number 10, the Cabinet Office, the Treasury. Um, do you think uh, those... We, we, we've talked a lot about how important personal relationships are, how important the kind of political direction is. Uh, do you think the uh, number 10 Treasury and wider supporting structures at the centre of government are, uh, to coin a phrase, fit for purpose? Uh, or do you think we need to think quite radically, go back to Department of Economic Affairs or um, other sort of reconfigurations of the of the centre, um, uh, tilt the Treasury towards quite a different uh, quite a different approach and centralise those core um, policy and economic decision making in a, uh, in, a in, in a central uh, unit, which you know would be an evolution of some of the developments that that we've seen uh, more recently. So, um, uh, Robert, first, perhaps, what do you think about about the structures? Um, well, the Department of Economic Affairs wasn't a notable no. success. Um, you know, the, the, and and the, you know the Treasury was certainly very keen to kill it. Uh, in, in my experience, the truth is that. Outside of possibly the Treasury, departments are as strong as the minister who's in charge of them. And when you have a minister who people take seriously and think is on the up, um, it can make a real difference. I, I, I find myself constantly looking at, um, at, at what we have to call bays, but in my you know, instilled long-term memory, I still think of as the DTI, uh, and, and, which is a department which has never quite managed um, to find its purpose, which has vast, quite a lot of money in terms of business support grants to spend and spend. That was a recent NAO report which showed that there was almost shockingly inadequate monitoring and measuring and testing of what they were trying to achieve against their goals. And when Rishi Sunak was being mentioned as a potential head of that instead of staying at, at, at the Treasury, one of the arguments was that it would actually be a very good customer to the Treasury because it might actually be run properly and in a way that, that functions sensibly. I think the more interesting one uh, which I think you touched on, is the issue of the use of the Cabinet Office, what's currently the Michael Gove position, and whether you can turn the Cabinet Office into essentially a Prime Minister's department, uh, the centralisation of the SPADs um, currently under Dominic Cummings, but whether you can just give much more welly and more power to number 10, which I think is the only institution that really can um, take on the Treasury in terms of clout, if not in terms of, of numbers. And again, I, but, but again, I think the most interesting innovation there's been on that in recent years was probably the delivery unit um, under Michael Barber, which was just very, very dogged and persistent in pursuing people week in, week out, on delivery, on numbers. What have you done this week? How much more than last week? And I think the, the, the best way to strengthen the centre is to use it as an instrument of accountability for the actions of all the other departments, rather than go in for changing the names of Whitehall departments and moving a few civil servants here and moving them there. I mean, the IFG has done a lot of very interesting work on the cost of changing departments. And in the end, most of those functions still have to be done by somebody. So it, 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 it's very exciting for politicians and for the media, but it, it, it's not the best way to get things done, I don't yes. think. And thank you for the plug for uh, that. It's the it's partly the upfront cost, but also the distraction cost of uh, uh, of uh, asking officials and ministers to to set up new new things. Um, uh, Kate, what do you think about the sort of the in, institutional uh, nature of the centre? Should we be should we be thinking about changes? Well, I, I completely agree with Robert's point about um, people being key here. I mean. You might want to have the power grab of, you know, being the implementation unit or the policy person, but unless you have the credibility and unless you are the politician, people want to hear their view, um, it, it, you're not going to actually be able to implement that role. So, 
I mean, I think a good example of, of, um, of in my time, sort of um, institutions that did or didn't work for is, is the policy unit, which is a sort of semi-institution in number 10. I mean, the policy unit in our time, when we began, was a mixed mid-down conservative policy unit which didn't really do any of the things it was supposed to do in a way, in a way that suited us, e.g. shadow governments, were they implementing things properly, were they delivering, and were they coming up with new policy ideas? Because what, what was a coalition policy? Was it a Lib Dem policy or conservative policy? And um, sometimes I think that the, the one thing I would have changed if I'd gone back is to, it had a unit that was, the, the, the new thinking policy unit and a separate thing which was there looking over departments and making sure that they were implementing the policy um, in a more um, political way, in a way, a more radical way. But I wouldn't get into the cabinet office thing, which I think everybody dreams of doing that. And then in the end, it doesn't really go anywhere. And the um, importance of, I mean, it comes back to your point about the importance of personality, but if you've got a strong Michael Gove uh, or Michael Gove-like figure in the Cabinet Office, then it's sort of de facto uh, a, a strong centre uh, uh, anyway. Uh, Torsten, what's your take on the, the structures? Well, a slight danger here is that we all um, agree <laughs> slightly too much. I think that all makes sense, and I definitely agree that moving bits around for the sake of it is a fool's errand. The... Um, uh, I also think that probably the experience of economic crises, there is value in there is there are synergies between the finance ministry and the economics ministry being together during those um, times, and we shouldn't uh, forget that, even though it doesn't may not feel always helpful to everybody else during the rest of the economic cycle. Um, more broadly, I'd have, if we look at the centre of government today, slightly building on what Kate's saying, I, I'd say we have we haven't done an, we haven't seen an impressive policy but broadly conceived operation in the central government for quite some uh, time uh, for different reasons at different times but broadly i'd say the three functions you want are uh, broad strategic policy direction uh, monitoring of day-to-day are we kind of getting on doing the right things and then you want a delivery function which is has in different phases all but disappeared completely and those three do need to be institutionalized uh, in forms. I'm not saying you can't have overlap. I could even imagine them being done within a much bigger, beefed up uh, central central function. But you do need explicit focus on all of those. Otherwise, you end up, if you're not focused on knowing what your overall strategy is, you get an Andrew Lansley uh, problem. If you don't focus on delivery, you, you just do end up with drift on key priorities. So that is where I'd say the problem is more than it is to do with the exact structure of particular departments. Drawing towards the end, a final question again to the to the three of you. It's hard. Um, it's hard to see beyond the uh, coronavirus uh, crisis that we're in the middle of uh, now. Um, I mean, thinking about prime ministers and chancellors, but also more generally, uh, what do you think? The uh, corona won't be here forever. What do you think government is likely to look like after we come out of the end of this uh, crisis? Uh, as I say, prime ministers, chancellors, but also more generally how the centre of government runs and the, 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 the structure of government in two, three years' time when uh, hopefully we're, uh, we're, we're, we're out of this uh, moment. Robert, what, 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 what are your predictions? Ah, okay. There's a few things. I mean, first of all, obviously, um, there is going to be a sort of grisly scorecard up between particularly Western democratic nations at the end of this. And where we stand on that is going to be directly relevant to how uh, this government is 
is it's going to be the be all end of how this government is judged. If people's direct experience of this crisis is terrible, of an NHS unable to cope, and of people dying when they didn't need to, um, then that's that's probably curtains, certainly for the Prime Minister, and therefore a lot of things follow on from that. On the broader, more theoretical point, uh, depending on how long it lasts and how deep it goes, uh, we are moving into a sort of semi-mobilised society. And the last time we had a mobilised society, which was the war, um, it changed the way people thought about a lot of things, including leading to the creation of the welfare state, nationalisation, all kinds of measures that followed on from the experience of people working together, of governments taking control of key industry and production. Um, and I'm not saying all those things are going to happen again, but I think there will be long-term political shifts in attitude, be it to the creation of a universal basic income, be it to more state control in certain areas, um, be it to the way we think about the be our readiness to accept the measures necessary for climate change. I'm not sure what they will be, but I think there will be long-term shifts in public sentiment about policy and it will be towards more collective action and um, a greater need to uh, and need to provide greater support to the poorest end of society. And some of that, I think, is likely to be permanent. Or no, I think it's worth. I think it is worth. I think it, it, the it is going to have a very profound effect. Like governments come in having ideas about what they in practice are actually about. Hopefully, some ideas. But events decide what a government is for. This government came in thinking that its agenda was a new kind of conservatism, not continuation of the last 10 years, levelling up, increasing spending. That was what was going to mark it out. And Brexit, what is actually going to mark this government out is its response to this crisis. That is partly because it is just so big and it will last, you know, two, three years and there's only four years till the next election. There won't be anything else substantive to but it is also because it's going to reshape the context in which those broader economic decisions, be they on Brexit, but also on higher spending, are going to be shaped. Your ability to spend lots more money on public services without increases in taxation just disappeared. And that's the very economic strategy the Chancellor announced last week. So it is going to fundamentally determine what this government is. And this now this is going to have, to have been the coronavirus government, whatever happens. And the other things are going to be secondary to that. So much for levelling up. Kate, what do you think? Um, well, I mean, a lot of good points made by the by the others. I mean, I completely agree that the whole, the idea of what people want to have their money spent on in terms of public service and how much they're willing to have um, to, to spend on that, is good. it might be absolutely radically altered. Um, I mean, I agree that there's a community side to it. I mean, there, there's this whole question of sort of the young and the old and the, the People sit in isolated communities, and now suddenly everyone's, you know, realizing they're not going to see their grandparents, and those relationships really matter, and the pain of that is very real. And I think there's going to be a bigger sort of emotional toll on the nation, and we don't know how that's going to actually feel when we come through it. But I think it will be very profound, and I think it will affect policy, and it will affect strange, I mean, policy in strange areas like. For example, how how much food we want to make in our own country. I mean, we we we, we talk endlessly about 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 sort of moving away from food security, but maybe we're going to be moving back towards that for an example. And finally, of course, there will be the huge debt at the end of it, and um, we'll come into an election cycle almost the opposite of of where you normally are with a, with a government who tries to sort of. Make make the economy all looking rosy at the end of the cycle. I mean, actually, 
when we come when we hit the next electoral cycle, you know, we're going to be a country with huge debt, with very different sort of values, and we're going to feel quite different. So it is it is a, it is a huge the impact is huge. Profound moment. My um my final stupid question, as is traditional, um, to wrap these uh, things up. Uh, do you think we'll have the same prime minister and the same chancellor by the time of the next election, Torsten? Uh, I have no idea, but you know, I have no reason to think otherwise. And I think the thing that leans in favour of that being more likely than not um, is, one, we're not going to change the prime minister unless something serious happens because there is a majority of 80 and it's low majority governments that change prime minister during halfway, as it were. And on the chancellor, the fact that, the, that this prime minister has already changed twice, in particular the last change, um, uh, and its messiness, I think, means that the current Chancellor's position is pretty strong and given that they have a decent relationship and that the, the Chancellor may well want to be Prime Minister, but he doesn't want to be Prime Minister tomorrow, means that uh, there are the structural conditions for them lasting are, are strong in the kind of internal Whitehall world. The thing that plays against that is that we're heading into a massive crisis and that causes big, big political uncertainty. See, I said it was a stupid question, but you can give a very intelligent answer to it. Um, uh, Robert? Uh, well, I think the answer to your question, unfortunately, is your question really is, how do you think this government is going to manage this crisis? Because, as Torsten says, the, the only thing that's going to unseat Boris Johnson is the fury of his own party um, and the rage of the country because it's gone so disastrously wrong. That's the only mechanism I can see by which he is removed. It has to be by a decision of the Conservative Party. And the only way I can see that happening is if this crisis is so desperately, disastrously badly handled that he is no longer viable um, as a Prime Minister. So I don't know the answer to your question, but if that's the only criteria, then I probably hope he stays. And the Chancellor? Um, it's, it's just too yeah. long away. There's not a lot of places to go upwards um, from Chancellor. So Again, if things go reason or as well as they can under the circumstances, there's no reason to expect him to move. Uh, but you know, if we're talking four years, that's an awfully long. And Kate, time. well, I think um, I think that's right. I think they're probably here, here here to stay. I mean, the one thing I'd say is during the financial crisis, the thing we really noticed was most incumbents didn't win their following election. Um, the financial crisis really did sort of eat through people's political careers. Um, and this is, you know, a massive, a massive um, crisis too. But um, the other question I would ask is, you know, what's going to happen with the leader of the opposition? <laughs> um, we don't even know who that's going to be uh, next. So, um, um, so yes, for now, yeah. I think it's worth, since on, on that point, I think who, who is whose chance of not remaining in office is going down by the minute? Donald Trump's. That is where yeah. you're – because you have an election yeah. – in the immediate aftermath, unless it gets cancelled, um, that is who I would think this, that's whose political lifespan is being shortened by this crisis. Yes, extraordinary press conferences and uh, and other things we've been watching on uh, on, on that score. Um, and subjects, whether it's the opposition or uh, international affairs or anything else for future IFG events, uh, podcasts, uh, streaming, whatever we end up uh, calling them. 
thank you uh, hugely to the panel, to uh, Kate, Torsten and Robert for being so uh, flexible and contributing so uh, brilliantly to the uh, to, to, to this conversation. Thank you also to the production team for uh, adapting to new uh, new worlds and new, new events. Do subscribe to the various IFG events and follow us on Twitter and have a look at all our output through this uh, this unusual and difficult time. Thank you to all of you for listening and keep washing your hands. 